Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Uh, Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in leadership. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, Today, we have with us uh, Ms. Jessica Pennington, who is the executive director of an innovative project based in Georgia called the Truancy Intervention Project. Welcome, Jessica. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, glad to have you with us. Uh, Truancy Intervention Project is a uh, an organization that is really just seeking to decrease chronic absentee- absenteeism uh, by pairing trained volunteers with children and their families. So they're an advocacy group. They provide resources and services to make sure uh, students are in attendance. So uh, this week we're we're glad to have Jessica. Um, and um, we're going to just talk a little bit about um, what they're doing and, and here, because I know there are a lot of people, including myself, um, that really want to hear uh, about what you do and how you do it. So, um, Jessica, tell us a little bit about yourself, but, but I really am interested uh, also in um, how you started and, and, and what the real substance of the work is that you're doing. Um, in, in TIP? Um, well, for, for me, my background is in social work. So I went into, um, you know, undergrad and graduate school to get degrees in social work, um, had worked with children um, in battered women's uh, shelter settings um, with Easter Seals of North Georgia. So had worked with um, special and typical needs children in that setting. Um, and had was currently in a position with the state court-appointed special advocate program here in Georgia when I heard about this position. Um, and, you know, to be honest, the first time I was talked uh, with about the position, I kind of chuckled, and I thought, a bunch of lawyers helping kids who are struggling with school attendance, that sounds kind of nutty. Um but that was 25 years ago, um, and I took the job, and it is a brilliant strategy. Um, attorneys are uniquely trained um, to really be troubleshooters and problem solvers. Um, they are swift in analysis. Um, so as I started working with the, the program, my board of directors was made up completely of attorneys from area law firms in Atlanta, and I started to see the magic um, of partnering these folks who were working pro bono, um, partnering them with children who were coming into the juvenile justice system because of problems at school. Um, they are you know, really innovative in coming up with solutions to the problems that the kids are encountering. Um, so it, it really has been a phenomenal partnership and um, we have seen over the years um, an overall success rate of about 86%, which is, um, you know, a very encouraging number. 
Absolutely. I mean, that sounds very uh, uh, interesting. I, I would agree if I had heard the same thing uh, when you were uh, first introduced to the project about the the lawyers and 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 truancy. I, I probably would have had the same um, uh, the same um, response. Uh, so so I guess it goes without saying you have this whole program. Uh, dedicated to truancy intervention, truancy prevention, um, suggests that there has been historically an issue with truancy. Um, and and so are you currently only working in Georgia? Is that kind of the, the extent of where you, where you are? Yes, we are um, yes. here in the state of Georgia. Our flagship program is here in Atlanta, in Fulton County, which is gotcha. uh, the capital, you know, of the state. And we, yep. you know, initially the program was started in 1991. So we will be turning 30 in October. Wow! So real Congratulations. Big year for us. Thank you. Um, and so initially we were a pro bono project. We were um, really launched by the Atlanta Bar Association here. And the idea was to get, you know, this cadre of volunteer attorneys and partner them with kids who were entering the juvenile justice system, try to intervene, get children back, you know, into school, out of, out of the juvenile justice system, um, and back on track. And over the years, we have added several components to that uh, recipe. And um, included in that, as you mentioned, around prevention, um, we have added an early intervention component where we take elementary school age children and we take those referrals before, you know, there's even any hint that there might be a problem that would warrant court intervention. We are in 17 schools um, taking children, you know, directly into our program. The recipe is always the same, that the children, once they're referred, the idea is to partner them with staff and volunteers who can help work with the child, but also the families in figuring out, you know, what are the barriers to regular school attendance. Um, we have a waiting list for that program. Principals really like that program. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, we say this in our recruitment efforts with volunteers. You know, the idea here is partnership. You know, by the time a school refers a student to us, um, things are not going well. You know, these are not yes, first response. These are not. This is not the first response the school has. So we're talking about kids who, you know, probably families that is very well known to the schools. You know, have histories of poor attendance. You know, chronic tardiness, absenteeism, um, and so the school has already employed every strategy in their, you know, their every tool in their toolbox. Um, mm -hmm. to no avail. So by the time we get this, the student, you know, these are these are big problems. You know, we're not looking for some, you know, a volunteer to, you know, help somebody with pencils, you know, or right, you right. Know, necessarily, you know, so, a simple fix. Although sometimes it's a simple mm -hmm. fix, but most mm -hmm. of the time, you know, we're dealing with families that are in crisis. You've got, you know, uh, an overwhelmed parent, and maybe there are chronic, you know, housing issues. Um, special education issues where the school has attempted to work with a family to get children tested and assessed and the family's been resistant. Um, so our volunteers spend a lot of time um, really in that almost mediator role. Um, again, mm -hmm. that, and where that legal background is, is pretty significant. Um, sure. And, you know, the other thing that, that having a volunteer attorney in the picture brings to the, to the situation that I had not anticipated um, is a real sense of pride. A lot of the times our families have not, 
you know, had someone kind of get their back, you know, um, and the volunteers come in and they're like, you know, we're here for you. And, you know, what, what do we need to do to make sure you have what you need so your, you know, your child can get to school? Um, for the teenagers, the high school kids, you know, the volunteers are like, I'm, you know, I'm here for you. And you can mm-hmm. see the kids, you know, stand up a little straighter um, and feel some empowerment. Um, and the volunteers, you know, we worked in our training program to, you know, really reinforce the attorney volunteers. You know, we're not asking you to do this for the families or the students. We want you to remind them they have agency. You know, they've mm-hmm. got power over this situation. And how do we, you know, get them inspired to, you know, be, you know, run their own lives and, and be excited about their future. So that's Absolutely. sort of, you know, those are some of the programmatic components. The other things that we do, we found years ago, um, because so many of our kids were initially involved in our program through the juvenile justice system, was, you know, they're pretty beat up on. You know, these are kids who've been told a lot that, that you know, they're bad students. They're they're not great kids. They're troublemakers. They're, and so we added an incentive component, and that's a big part of what we do. We want to celebrate every success, and we want to celebrate every um, achievement, and we do that. So we do that sort of all year long, um, you know, give the kids um, that add a girl, add a boy that often our students don't get a lot of. Um, and so that's been a big, a big piece um, through our sure. behavioral health services. Sure, sure. So um, how big of an issue is it? What are we talking about uh, in terms of rates? So I know you're only working in Georgia, but specifically kind of focused in Fulton County. And, and by the way, we probably know some of the same people. Um, we, we know we, we have some, uh, former graduates of a the program I direct um, at Columbia University um, uh, that are in leadership roles in Fulton. So we probably know some of the same people. Um, but I, I was just curious about um, how big of an issue is it really um, that someone would have to uh, get the assistance? I mean, your 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 strategy uh, sounds like a really good one. Mentorship and advocacy, um, all are very, very positive. Um, why, would, why would a district decide to do that kind of as an outside resource, so to speak? Is it, a really, is it an overwhelming issue still? Yes. You know, sadly, I mean, if you look at the national statistics, you know, um, I think the most recent stat I saw was 2016, um, that still, you know, shows that about 7 million kids a year um, wow. are are missing school. Um, so that's a lot. You know, that's about one in six kids. And, you know, we know from, again, from the data that, you know, once children start missing school, their a- academic achievement goes way down. That um, if a kid misses two days a month, um, every month, that's about 10% of the school year. Mm-hmm. So that's a chunk, you know, and that's that's mm-hmm. just two mm-hmm. days. So that's, you know, right. a couple of colds or um, – and what we have in our situation is kids who, you know, you start to see the patterns. They're they're absent um, every Friday, and they're late every Monday, you know. Um, so you're talking about four days a month. Well, that's, you know, right. that, that's a lot of the school year. You're talking right. about 20% of the school year. Um, and so uh, the problem persists. Um, and what we find, again, and, and yes, so the districts do come to us. They do um, seek this, this sort of intervention um, because, again, 
by the time we get the case or the student's case, the schools have, you know, employed what's at their disposal. And so these are the families that are, the problem is not usually just, um, I don't want to go to school. You know, you're talking about families who are living with domestic violence, there's addiction, um, the chronic housing uh, problems that we have, especially, you know, we're having it nationwide, but Atlanta is, is no different. Um, <clears throat> There is a problem with affordable housing here, so we have a lot of families that move a lot. Um, and again, the research is clear that you know you can look at every time a child moves or changes school, um, what happens to their academic achievement, um, mm -hmm. and it's not mm -hmm. good. So mm -hmm. even though kids may be moving, you know, around Atlanta, you know, they're they're moving from you know this neighborhood to that neighborhood, there may be a school change involved there, or right. a family doesn't change the school and thinks, well, I'll be able to get them you know, over to, over to the old school every day, and then they can't, you know, for whatever reason, the transportation breaks down, and so students just start, you know, stacking up all these absences. Sure. So, um, you know, in those cases, that's, you know, with our early intervention program in particular, um, we've had a waiting list for that program for, you know, years. Uh, we just have a capacity issue. We only have so many volunteers, so we can't just sort of go everywhere that we're asked. Um, but, you know, uh, school social workers and principals yeah. uh, are, are looking for those kinds of solutions because, you know, people who work in education want students to come to school. <laughs> you know, they yeah, want them yeah. there. Um, mm -hmm. And so they're, they're looking for partnership in trying to solve some of those problems that keep kids from regular school attendance, and that's what we try to do. Right, right. And I definitely can see your, you know, your experience and expertise as a, a social worker at work there. You know, you describe uh, bringing resources and especially where they're, com you know, it's a complex issue. They're not, often it's not just because they are, you know, kind of like the um, the little rascals. Um, I think about, with you know, it's kind of the the quintessential example of truancy, you know, where they always little rascals were always skipping school and it's not necessarily that image, but there are, there are a host of reasons why mm -hmm. um, students aren't at school and, and bringing to bear those resources. Um, what is your typical kind of, when you, when you mentioned advocacy, what are the typical needs? Cause I, you know, when I think about that, I think, you know, and, and just hearing from what you described around that you're, you're, you, you are employed, if you will, or, or you know, contracted by the, the, the school districts to be involved. And so um, certainly there are conversations that happen around why the students are missing, but what does the typical advocacy look like when it's not um, necessarily the the students, but there's an issue with the school or with the district. What does that look like? How do you how do you intervene? Is it that you do kind of mediation to get the kids back? Because I I know from you know experience that um, sometimes some of the barriers that children face to come into school are at school. And mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to know what, so what, what does advocacy typically look like? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, the well, so it's kind of a two-part question. So I'll start with the first one, which is specifically about when we the, the issue that we uncover is related to the school. Um, we are a private nonprofit. So our agency, we are a 501c3. We have a governing board of directors. We're mostly privately funded. We get one small county grant. Um, for which we're eternally grateful, in case anyone from the county is listening. <laughs> we're very grateful. Um, but we're privately funded. So we do not have, you know, any barriers to pushing back on the schools if we need to. And our volunteers are adept at that. Um, they are, as you say, you know, they can mediate the problem. They can come back to us. We do have a full staff. So my background is in social work. Um, I have two other social workers on staff. We have two attorney positions on staff, a volunteer mm -hmm. coordinator and a fundraiser. So, you know, our, our, our attorneys who are on staff have very good relationships with the the law firm that represents the school systems. So we can and do work very hard to preserve those relationships so that, you know, if a volunteer comes back and says, you know, the problem really is this kid, you know, his Spanish teacher is, you know, humiliating him and, and uh -huh. I don't know what to uh -huh. do. Um, right. You know, then we have avenues that we can pursue kind of behind the scenes. We're not trying to embarrass people, but at the same time, right. ultimately, um, our goal is that student and that student's yeah. best interests. And so um, we spend a lot of time nurturing relationships and um, and, and, and doing that, that kind of um, advocacy as well as the face-to-face -face advocacy in terms of volunteer and student or our staff in the school. Um, we, we approach it from multiple avenues. You know, that mm -hmm. overall, you know, when, when people say sort of what's, what's the advocacy look like, what's the typical case, you know, I always say, you know, we're talking about kids here. So one size right. fits one. <laughs> you know, right. There, there, there is not a, you know, a, you know, a formula. Um, and again, where the volunteer attorneys are are so helpful is is that this is what they're used to, right? You know, these uh -huh. are people who go to law school and they know how to work with clients. I mean, this is what you do. You sit in depositions, you sit in meetings, you get hired to do a job, and then you work the job. Um, and so they spend a lot of time getting to know the kid and finding out what's really going on. And then we go about addressing those identified issues um, from those multiple strategies. We do, you know, we do work on the state level. Our legislative session just ended. Um, and we participate in those advocacy conversations. Um, so from policy, you know, we have good friends at the State Department of Education. So from policy, you know, all the way down to, you know, the five-year-old in kindergarten at the school up the street, you know, we're trying to make sure that those kids' best interests are protected and and um, articulated and advocated for in all of those arenas. You know, children interface with healthcare systems. So we, you know, we've got friends at, you know, at pediatricians and at, you know, the healthcare here in Atlanta is called you know, CHOA, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Um, mm -hmm. We try to make sure that, you know, if the problem is the school, we have an avenue. If the problem is sure. the child needs dental work, we have an avenue. If they're, you know, that we can approach this um, from a whole child perspective. That's wonderful. Very, very interesting um, and informative. Um, for those of you who just joined us, I'm talking with uh, Jessica Pennington, who is the executive director of TIP, the Truancy Intervention Project based in Georgia. Um, or uh, if you'd like to call in 
today and uh, make a comment, ask a question. The number is 657-383-1481. Again, 657-383-1481. We also have an email address at perkinsplatformpodcast at gmail.com. Again, perkinsplatformpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to uh, send your um, questions and comments. Um, I, you know, you, you mentioned about a lot of the services, and I think, interestingly, those are like the, the full service school approach, uh, holistic approach, uh, I think is, for me, what underlines why you've been successful at this, that there's not a, a one-size-fits-all. Um, there's also uh, a student-focused um, uh, approach. Uh, and that I think what it sounds like is that you do come to it uh, to any of those issues as a ch- from a child centered approach. Uh, everything you talked about, you kept going back to the students, and so I commend you for that. Uh, so, you know, I, I, it also made me think about what other districts are doing that don't have services from an outside entity like yours, what typically is it that they are doing or, or not doing? I mean, there's, there's so much that you just said that um, I think a lot of people could, you know, borrow from and do some of the same um, things, but what, what is it that they do in that, in, in, or at least what you've seen? You know, it's, and again, I'm sure Georgia is not unique, but um, it's challenging. You know, Georgia is, um, it's a big state. We have 159 counties in Georgia. Uh, I think the only state in the country that has more counties is Texas, which I think is, you know, three times the geographic size. Um, so I remember an undergrad in, poly, in political science, I was going to say poli side, but in political science, you know, other universities studied Georgia, um, that we have so many little counties and that, you know, part of the, at least the lore is, is that county lines were drawn when you could ride a mule for a day. As soon as the, you know, the day was over, you'd stopped and you drew a county line. I don't know if that's true, um, but it makes it challenging. And, and the state also um, really does subscribe to local districts, um, local district control, which sounds which is, I think, wonderful in theory. The problem is, is that when you look at um, the QBE, the you know the education um, funding uh, formulas, it's not always very evenly divvied up. Um, so there's a real equity issue here. Um, again, not unique in Georgia, but um, the equity issue is is at play. So to answer your question, um, particularly in the rural parts of the state, um, children are are lost. I mean, kids are. They're not all dropping out. Some of them are pushed out. Um, you can look at school discipline data and see um, that there are schools that are so strapped for resources and ideas and help that they are, you know, they're going the discipline route. That you know, if a kid can't, you know, get here every day, or if they can't sit in their seat, or they can't do the work, um, they become behavior problems, and they get suspended. They get expelled. They get, um, uh, you know, they get so much detention that they do finally quit in frustration. So um, mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, it, it persists uh, here and the issue um, is not, you know, just, uh, it's not, a, it's not an easy fix. 
Um, there is some really exciting work being done here around equity in education. Um, there, um, that conversation is, is really rich and vibrant right now, which is wonderful um, and probably a little overdue. Um, but there's some really exciting um, opportunities right now to look at um, school boards and elections and, and um, resource, you know, divvying up so that um, it can go more into equity, that if a, a district, even if it's little and has fewer students, if the need is greater for financial resources, then they get a bigger mm -hmm. piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. um, you know, richer parts of the state, if the PTA is active and the, the parent body can maybe make up the difference, you know, let's make those decisions. They're unpopular uh, and they're hard. But um, if we can elect the right school board members who can, you know, hire the right superintendents who can make those really hard choices, you know, children are the winners. Um, and that's starting. Those conversations are in maybe in the embryonic stage, but they're yeah. happening and, um, and, and there's some bright spots for sure. But, you know, sure. the short answer is um, kids often get short shrift um, mm -hmm. because you know, if if there's a problem at home, the kid's doing the best they can, and they're still not doing well at school, and the school doesn't have any way to help them, they're, you know, they, they become a statistic. Sure. And, and there are so many challenges, particularly during this time with unemployment and, and from what the statistics are showing, uh, increased uh, domestic violence and on and on, uh, that makes all the, even more challenging. And unfortunately, the, with, with the challenging times that we're in, that when a student presents with, you know, kind of a, a different set of, of, of issues that are not easily resolved, um, unfortunately, they get pushed aside and are seen as, you know, the, the problem cases. And so I think you know, the work that you're doing is is vitally important. Um, I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to get a sense, you know, we've been talking about truancy and and also just now, you know, during these times, we're, we're living in some unprecedented times and with, with the COVID pandemic, what has truancy intervention looked like during COVID? Um, you know, we don't typically think about that from a virtual perspective, but what what is your work like right now? <laughs> right. Well, wow. You know, like everyone, it's it's been a work in progress. We've been, you know, as the expression goes, we've been building the the airplane as we fly it. So um, we've stayed true to our basic philosophy, which is we take things as they come, and we use creative strategies um, as the situation presents. We're very fortunate in that in Georgia, our superintendent of the Department of Education here, the state superintendent, very early in the, in the pandemic said, you know what, we're moving to compassion over compliance. So schools gotcha. um, were, they were alleviated from the burden of, um, of tracking things like, you know, attendance in terms of, you know, if a child's having trouble with internet connectivity, you don't mark that child absent. You know, you don't put a blight on their record. Um, so let's just be compassionate. Um, that at the same time didn't excuse schools or, or dismiss the the requirement that schools reach out and make every you know every resource available so that children could have access to school. They weren't trying to you know let schools just say well we haven't heard from them too bad. Um, 
but not to punish children because um, of, you know, not having a laptop at home or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, could be mm-hmm. the case. So, you know, again, what it's looked like, it's been a patchwork. Um, it's kind of depends on where in the state you live. Georgia is, um, it's, it, there's a lot of rural areas here where there's not good Wi-Fi. You know, we've had stories from our rural partners of kids who've had to, like, sit at Burger King all day because that's where right. the you know, signal was strongest. Um, so, you know, we're going to be unpacking it for a long time. Um, in terms of, you know, what were any gains that children received um, through this in terms of academics, um, certainly I think, again, bright spot, you know, children have really found out about their own resiliency. Families have found that out. I mean, we've been put to the test, and I think by and large people have, um, you know, made the best of what's a really, you know, historic um, and terrible situation. Um, But I think the schools have taken a little bit of a deep breath um, and been reminded, as I remind, whenever I get the chance to speak, I remind folks that this is a global pandemic. You know, this isn't something that happened to Georgia. You know, this happened around the world. So, you know, when people start, you know, getting nervous about our children are going to be so far behind, you know, I think there's a, a moment of, of grace that if we can all take a breath and re- be reminded that, you know, the catch-up is ahead of us. Um but we're starting at the same line as everybody. You know, this is not mm-hmm. um, this is not something that is you know necessarily catastrophic. Let's mm-hmm. get our ducks in a row. Let's get some good get a nap <laughs> and arm <laughs> ourselves for the, for the for the fight ahead um, because the work lies ahead of us for sure. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, and really appreciate you again. As I said, for for taking the time to come out. Uh, this has been very informative for me and i'm sure there are others out there listening in who uh think uh think the same and uh so and thank you as well for being here uh for my regular listeners and even the ones that just joined us uh today i want to tell you a little bit about some exciting uh broadcasts that are coming up next week uh, we're going to have a special hour-long uh broadcast and actually the next two weeks are going to be hour-long broadcasts. Um, the first half hour on April 21st, starting at 1130, uh, my daughter Erin and I will um, discuss a, uh, a book focused on the water crisis in Flint, the, the book uh, entitled The Poison City. With, uh, it was uh, written by a um, uh, journalist in Detroit um, talking about the what happened and the the urban tragedy that it was. Um, so Aaron and I will um, talk first about what she uncovered as a investigative journalist in Flint, Michigan. Uh, then we're going to be joined by Miss um, uh, Yvonne Lewis, um, who is the CEO of the National Center for African American Health Consciousness. Uh, she is one of the leaders in the Flint case. Um, and lives there in Flint, and um, we'll be talking about the ongoing um, case and public conversation about the water crisis there in Flint. So join us next week. We're going to start at 11.30 Eastern Time next week on uh, Wednesday, April 21st. And then after that, exactly a week later, on Wednesday, April 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is our celebration of the 100th episode of Perkins Platform. Uh, Excited again to announce that 
Um, we have the, a very special guest, uh, the former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, uh, is going to be talking about, um, in part, his New York Times bestselling book and his leadership in Louisiana as the uh, mayor of New Orleans uh, during Hurricane Katrina and the B, uh, the BP oil spill. Um, he was elected uh, when the the uh, city was recovering from Hurricane Katrina, um, but he wrote a book called In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History. Um, you may remember that um, Mayor Landrieu um, uh, was at the forefront of having the um, public monuments removed uh, honoring Confederate soldiers and leaders. Um, so um, we're going to have a great conversation about race relations, the broader history of slavery and institutional inequalities that still plague the United States of America. Uh, so um, in addition to our great conversation today, we're just going to keep right on going over the next two weeks and certainly in the 100th episode celebration with uh, Mayor Landrieu. And so, uh, Jessica, again, this has been absolutely a great conversation. I'm so glad that you, you stopped by with us, wishing you the best on behalf of the families, because you, you, the work you're doing is, is necessary and imperative. So um, keep going and keep doing this work. Um, we wish you the best and all the, the, the staff there at TIP. And so to my listeners, until next time, go well, stay well. Thanks again, Jessica. Thank you.